Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замолели. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the fifth of seven events for Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. The Russian Revolution and Soviet declarations of internationalism, anti-racism, and anti-colonialism captured the imagination of Black American radicals in the interwar period. Prominent figures like Claude McKay, W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, and Louise Thompson, and lesser ones like Lovett Fort Whiteman, Harry Haywood, and Otto Hooswald traveled to the USSR to see this raceless society for themselves. What was the black experience and engagement with Soviet communism, and how did that inform their politics? Here's a conversation I had with Meredith Roman and Minka Makalani on the African-American relationship with the USSR, the Soviet promise of anti-racism, and its impact on the American and Pan-African liberation struggles in the 20th century. Meredith Roman is an associate professor of history at SUNY Brockport and the author of Opposing Jim Crow, African Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928 to 1937. Her current research focuses on dissent, human rights, and repression in the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. Minka Akalani is an associate professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of In the Cause of Freedom, Radical Black Internationalism from Harlem to London, 1917 to 1939, and co-editor with Devarian Baldwin of Escape from New York, The New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. He's currently working on two projects, the first is Calypso Conquered the World, CLR James and the Politically Unimaginable in Trinidad, which is a study of CLR James's return to Trinidad and his work on the West Indies Federation. The second project is Words Past the Margin, Black Thinking Through the Impossible, which explores streams of black political imagination in popular culture, Black Lives Matter, hip hop, and the cinema of the Senegalese filmmaker Usman Sembe. Here's Meredith Roman and Minka Makalani. So just to start, um, I wanted to ask you both, what got you into the topic of both, uh, for, for, in Minka's case, Black internationalism uh, and for Meredith, Soviet anti-racism? So let's start with you, Meredith. How did you get into this? Well, I was um, very fortunate to uh, be at Michigan State when Louis Siegelbaum was teaching there. 
um, now since retired, uh, and that when the Comparative Black History Program was in full effect under Darlene Clark Hine. So I was writing a research paper on the racialization of non-Russians in Moscow since the collapse of communism, using human rights watch reports uh, and using newspapers uh, to do this. And so I became really fascinated with the question of how a place that was had imagined itself as a bastion of internationalism and anti-racism could then so radically become a place where racial violence was unapologetic uh, in its manifestation. So I decided to investigate why, why this image of the Soviet Union was produced, who was producing it, what forms uh, it took, uh, and what purposes it served. <laughs> and that took me to uh, have to deal with African-American contributions because they were seminal to, its, to the architecture of Soviet anti-racist propaganda. We all know or have a sense of, of the way the Soviet Union uses uh, American racism for its own propaganda. But were you surprised by the amount of material that is available on, this, on these issues? Absolutely. Uh, I think what was what was staggering to me uh, was just how, especially in the 1929, 1930, 1931, just the amount of iconography <laughs> that uh, existed and permeated children's magazines, uh, permeated, you know, Pravda, the party newspaper, Izviestia, the, the state newspaper, um, true, the labor newspaper, and, and how African-Americans would just pop up, like with no context whatsoever, uh, but images of African-American women, sometimes named, sometimes not. Um, African-American men, sometimes featured with uh, clearly Russian workers. And oftentimes the articles surrounding them did not explain why they were there. Um, and it was just sort of assumed that it's, it's just natural that African-Americans would be you know, in, the, in Moscow or in Leningrad. Uh, so it was, it was, I was pleasantly surprised to say the least that there was enough material there to, to um, work with beyond, of course, Cirque in 1936, the famous film in 1936. Uh, and, and just the amount of effort that was put into, for example, the Scottsboro campaign, the number of cartoons and poems and photographs, uh, articles, uh, protest resolutions. I mean, it, it was impressive in you know, sort of its its uh, magnitude. And Mika, how about you? How what drew you to this this subject of of internationalism that that brought you to also work with uh, on the Russian side a little bit? Yeah, similar to what Meredith is uh, what she's laid out. For me, it was in uh, at the University of Missouri in the late 80s, early 1990s. We had a number of radical professors. So Susan Porter Benson, uh, David Rodiger, Gene Allman, and Sundiata Chajua in particular. Um, and a number of us as students got involved in student activism. And what you know, I can appreciate in retrospect is that we were being introduced to so much at that time. And we were engaged in a range of political formations and we fashioned ourselves uh, for what little we understood as Marxist Leninists. Uh, we didn't have any idea what we were talking about, but um, 
we were, you know, reading as much as we could. Um, and it was very nefarious. And then David Rodiger, he was working with a student group. This was shortly after CLR James had passed away. And so the, our group put on an event about CLR James. I had no idea who he was. I had heard of Black Jacobins and the documentary blew me away. And, and I was really fascinated by him. But then the very next week in a class with Sundiata Chajua, he mentioned the African Black Brotherhood. And he mentioned him, mentioned the organization in a way that uh, the mythology around him, around the, the ABB at the time, had them as the Black cadre of the Communist Party and the Leninist wing of the Garvey movement. Um, neither of which is, is, is quite accurate, but it, it nonetheless, it piqued a real interest. And I knew enough about um, going into old newspapers to try and find stuff about them. Um, and this kind of quickly led me to Bobby Hill's collection, the facsimile of the Crusader magazine, which was the magazine of the African Brotherhood and published by um, Cyril Briggs, who was from uh, St. Kitts and Nevis and had come to Harlem in the 19, uh, teen, or in the early 1900s with a number of other Caribbean radicals. And I already, I was a poet and I had this interest in the Harlem Renaissance. And so all these things came together, but it, it really just kind of stoked this interest to find out about these black radicals who were communists. They were also in the Garvey movement and they were uh, engaged in these political struggles and formations that spanned the world. And so this was all very new to me. I was like, you know, 18, 19 at the time. And so I just kind of took, you know, the 18, 19 year old dive into this left school. And then when I came back, uh, really picked the subject up because I, I came back and had one year of undergrad and then went straight into grad school um, and took on the African Blood Brotherhood as a dissertation topic. Um, and then just uh, continuing to explore the subject matter. What, what really drew my interest to the Russian side initially was the uh, 1928 uh, Black Belt Nation thesis, this, the resolution um, supporting self-determination for Black people in the Black Belt South. And then I found this article by Robin Kelly about um, the corresponding uh, thesis at that same Congress on South Africa. And so I wanted to know more about what happened on the Russian side. And so that's it kind of just all started going from there. Wow, fascinating trajectories for both of you. And, and of course, the people that influenced you is is is, is wonderful as well. Uh, you know, the interwar period is this time of, of, of radicalism in general and, and black radicalisms in particular from, you know, the communists you mentioned, the Garvey movement, the, 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 the radicalism of the arts uh, under the New Negro movement and everything in between. Um, Mika, talk about the context for the emergence of these various forms of black radicalisms in this period. Yeah, I think one of the things that is somewhat difficult to think about, and I always have this conversation with my um, students when I'm teaching this, is particularly in the U.S. Um, to think about a population that is one generation from being enslaved, so that everyone in existence knew someone or they were themselves formerly enslaved. Um, but then the kind of vibrant cultural production 
that emerges in the late 19th and early 20th century and the plethora of political organizations, intellectual organizations, not to mention the founding of schools and things of that nature. Um, and this, but this is still a period where a number of people are um, convinced of kind of the liberal democratic project of the United States and people who are coming from the Caribbean as well. The majority of people I work on in the first book are from the Caribbean. Um, they're coming to the U.S. and and they have not the same kind of belief, but a similar kind of belief in uh, the liberal democratic project. And that begins to get chipped away by the persistence of racial violence and structures of racism that in the quotidian form, just permeate everyday life from, you know, not being able to walk on the same side of the sidewalk or walk on the sidewalk if someone is white uh, in the South. This is a, was a common thing to race riots and lynchings, which were um, so common. And then uh, in particular, it is the World War One moment that highlights so much of this for a lot of people, because you have on the one hand, the, the rhetoric that kind of dominates with Wilson, with one, self-determination for certain peoples, and everyone understands that this is for Eastern Europeans, but not Asians, not Africans, uh, not Caribbeans, and definitely not Black people in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. Um, and you have, like Du Bois, the, the kind of Black liberal argument of proving one's citizenship through military service that then quickly begins to chip away. And then immediately after uh, World War One, I'm giving a, a, a very short gloss of all the complexities here, um, but you have the range of race riots in the U.S. And so we've seen both in recently in the series uh, Watchmen and then most recently in Lovecraft Country, where they both highlighted Tulsa in 1921. And this is one of those uh, events that really drives home in a national and even in a global way, this is reported in the black press, um, the, the real limits of what people have heard as the possibility of liberal democracy. And so that's where you get a range of responses. So from uh, Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which is opposing uh, British and French empire and wanting kind of a sovereign black political existence on the continent to uh, kind of radical labor organizing with uh, A. Philip Randolph and the messenger uh, and the brotherhood has been called porters to a range of black labor organizing um, to those first people who joined the communist party. And I think if we look at the scope of that, you see that everyone is really trying to grapple with the failure of the promise of liberal democracy at that point. And it's still the dominant view, I think. But what we get out of this, this flourishing of both uh, the New Negro Renaissance or what's commonly understood as the Harlem Renaissance, um, the range of political organizations from the Urban League and the LACP on through to uh, the UNIA, the, the Nation of Islam in the 1930s and other kinds of millenarian movements, to the, the range of them, they're, they're really grappling with what are the limitations and what are the other options, even as there's a sense that um, this is still possible. And I think what happens in the 1930s and with World War II, that really chips away 
at the, the, the sense of a possibility of a kind of a liberal democratic resolution or, or kind of this redemption narrative that I think then becomes ascendant. But that groundwork is laid by the range of these movements in the 1920s. Meredith, we Russian Revolution in 1917, but also the, the explosion of other revolutions, both, you know, mostly failed in Europe is also, you know, across the ocean in Europe and, and in Eurasia, also a revolutionary moment. Um, talk, put, put the Russian Revolution in, in this other, this context that Minka has talked about and, and its relationship to anti-colonialism and anti-racism. Well, I think it's, it's a pretty remarkable moment, uh, in world history that you have a world power, a European power, though of course it's European white status is is complex, um, but it's certainly perceived as outside of Europe to be this world power standing up on the world stage and saying, we will grant national self-determination to the colonized and oppressed people of the former Russian empire uh, and of the, uh, colonies of the Western liberal democracies. Uh, and that racism is, is a fiction, it's nonsense, that you are not behind the capitalist powers because you are racially inferior, uh, but because you've had the Western colonial oppressor on your back for so long. Uh, and so not only we will, so someone like Ho Chi Minh is not given an audience at Versailles, right? Where is he going to turn uh, to, but to this new fledgling Bolshevik state that is now providing not only the rhetoric, but some of the resources and education to support national liberation movements. Uh, so it's, it's really quite remarkable on a, uh, at a time when biological racism is uh, in full effect on the world stage that you have this sort of traitor, if you will, this race traitor on the continent um, trying to unleash what many white supremacists feared was a race war on a global scale. Uh, so, and I, and I think, you know, to Minka's point, the, the, the convergence of migration with the first world war, um, the fact that you have prominent African-American communists like Harry Haywood and James Ford who are part of the great migration from the US South to, to the North, to the supposed promised land of Chicago, and then serve uh, in the uh, US Army, experience a bit of dignity uh, from French officials, and then return to extreme the pogroms of, of 1919. Uh, so that all comes to play in, in the rhetoric of national self-determination uh, that Minkett also mentioned uh, the promise of national self-determination to allow for a positive sense of, of nationhood uh, independent of the hypocrisy of sort of white nationhood uh, in the American context. And so uh, I think the Bolshevik revolution of 1917, uh, we cannot understand the possibilities and the sort of imaginaries that emerge without acknowledging uh, what is coming out of Moscow. Yeah, let's talk about the the how the the Russian Revolution um, played in its place in the imagination of black radicals in in this period. Uh, you know, I, I 
I read reading like, for example, Surreal Briggs writing in, in The Crusader, you know, he's really attracted to it too. And he, and, and in fact, any black radical, it seems in the 1920s is, you know, painted with the, the label of being a Bolshevik or at least a, a Bolshevik tool. So what place did the revolution have in the, in the black imagination in this period? Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that, that does, uh, well, I guess one context is that in terms of political parties in the U.S. Um, and those that have some influence on the way that the, the society is functioning um, in a large scale, there is no party that is really speaking to Black people's condition the, that's really addressing in profound kinds of ways racial oppression. And then you have the Russian Revolution come along. And in the context of Wilson talking about self-determination, which is very limited, you have the uh, institution of segregated pol segregationist policies in Washington, D.C., and the federal government, the, the, the showing of um, birth of a nation and the, the, the real sense that the state, the U.S. state, is committed to this project of Jim Crow, of, of race, racial oppression. Um, the Soviet, uh, the, the Russian Revolution comes along and you have both these statements in support of self-determination for oppressed nations, but very quickly you have Asian radicals who are coming into what is by this time the Communist International. And they are able to push Lenin and the Bolsheviks around questions of what is the nature of national oppression in Asia, in the African continent, in India in particular. And a number of them see that as not merely, uh, Russia doesn't become just simply a political power that stands against U.S. or Western hegemony, but it's a political power that can actually put something material behind the rhetoric of self-determination for all oppressed peoples. And so this begins to, to draw people into communist parties across the United States. The other thing too to remember is that a number of people are not merely making the trek from the South to the North, but they're making the move from the Caribbean to the United States. Less so from Africa, but nonetheless from Africa to the United States. And so people are constantly thinking about what is going on in the U.S. in relationship to what's occurring with Black people in other parts of the world who are struggling under empire, British and French empire, um, but also other non-African peoples who are engaged in similar kinds of struggles. And so the Russian Revolution and the, and, the, and the Soviet Union institutionally and as a world force becomes something that they not simply join and then they are directed by, but it's something that they can join and they can shape. And so they see that from 1920. So and, and Roy, who is uh, Indian, radical in the U.S. He ends up in Mexico, goes to to Moscow to attend the Second Congress in 1920. He ends up with in this very famous debate with Lenin about the nature of national liberation struggles in Asia and Africa. 
and that transforms how the Soviet Union thinks about it. And so uh, when Meredith mentioned Ho Chi Minh, um, it's he's reading Lenin's statement after the engagement, both before, but also after the engagement with Emin Roy. And it, it motivates him to join or to be a part of the founding of the French Communist Party. So you see this across the board. And even in that context, you're talking about Asian radicals, uh, someone like Ho Chi Minh, in organizations with African radicals and Francophone Caribbean radicals. So I think it's 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 both the appeal and the the real sense that this is a, a, a world force that can actually transform the circumstances of oppressed peoples around the globe. But it's also something that they can influence and inform, that they aren't merely joining and then following uh, a party line. They're actually helping to shape the policies and positions that the Soviet Union or the common turn at least is taking. No, just to, to make his point about their agency, I mean, I, they they manipulate the Russian Revolution to support their own visions of, um, in this case, you know, I'm focusing mostly on African America, but what they want America to be. Uh, so if they are envisioning an America without capitalist exploitation, uh, and white supremacy or just envisioning an America without white supremacy and sort of leaving out the class struggle. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of even the writings of um, Homer Smith later in the, the 30s when he's writing for the black press, especially his column in the Chicago Defender under the, under the name Chatwood Hall, where he's describing the Soviet Union as the most Christian country in the world because they're really natural Christians, even though, you know, he doesn't mention atheism, but he's, he's claiming that they truly treat each other, uh, you know, by following the golden rule. Uh, so, it, so there's a lot of uh, manipulation uh, and imagination that doesn't necessarily follow along the lines of what Moscow would, would want them to be saying and doing. So it, it's, it opens up possibility. I mean, I was recently rereading James Ford and James, James Allen's um, Negroes in Soviet America and the vision that they are laying out for what a black Soviet Republic would look like in the South and then what the North would look like as a Soviet America and what that would mean for black people in a Soviet America in the North. I mean, it's just amazing the sort of degree of dreaming, if you will, or envisioning possibilities that were beyond what uh, could be achieved through reform, right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that that the Russian Revolution promises revolutionary change within their time, um, not this gradualist reformist approach, but that they could they and their children or grandchildren could see it. Uh, real change could happen uh, in in a short amount of time. Like you both of you said, the, the the Russian Revolution really does state a commitment and also, you know, a state behind it that's that's providing context resources, but also a place for these, you know, radicals to come from different parts of different struggles together and, and influence one another. Uh, Meredith, what is Soviet anti-racism and who is it directed toward? It's directed both towards a domestic audience as well as to a global one. Uh, so it's multi-layered, obviously, but I think on the most basic level, it's this understanding that there are there's nothing wrong with black people, uh, that what is wrong is the system of American racial capitalism or Western colonialism, uh, that it's wrong to make statements 
or racist statements, that you should be ashamed, that it's an indicated indication of an uncivilized backward person to make racist statements. Uh, and that not only that you shouldn't refrain from making racist statements, but that you should actively condemn racism. And before I would argue the rise of Nazi Germany, the United States was envisioned in the Soviet imaginary as the most racist place in the world. Uh, and so the overwhelming focus of a lot of the anti-racist propaganda was on US racism. So it was also condemning uh, the crimes of Jim Crow and lynching and teaching the Soviet populace about those you know, sort of forms of American racial violence uh, and expecting them to have some knowledge of it and be able to participate in rallies to perform their you know, sort of outrage at it. Though I, I would say there's, it's just not performance. There, it's a bit more complex than that, uh, especially for you know, sort of looking on a case by case basis. But then it's also welcoming African-American visitors, uh, you know, sort of appropriating blackness in a way to demonstrate that we are a superior society because we are welcoming and including uh, the most despised racial group or sort of oppressed group in the world in African-Americans. We are including them. Uh, we are valuing their talents, not only in the field of music or entertainment, but also as intellectuals, uh, as, as workers, uh, so as valuable contributors to our new society and our new world. And so it, it's, it's, there's a lot of imagery and discourse that is also undermined by a lot of problematic imagery and discourse that coexists with anti-racism. But at the same time, it creates a level of freedom and dignity for many African-Americans who travel there that they would, un, would they claim that they do not have access to in the United States. And most of that conceptualization of freedom and dignity is associated with the physical safety and security, you know, sort of, of not fearing bodily harm in the Soviet Union. And of course, white American businessmen in the Soviet Union at the same time really hated the fact that African-Americans were accorded this respect and dignity uh, in the Soviet Union. They found it very dangerous um, because of what the implications could be for the United States once this African-American population returns home. Um, Harry Haywood famously talks about after having lived in Moscow for several years, returning to the United States and then having to unlearn the walk of dignity and having to sort of shuffle a bit more and be more obsequious uh, so that uh, he did not elicit any uh, potential violence, right? Uh, in the United States. So it's it's complex and it creates these realities that are not easily summed up or uh, understood in a sort of black and white manner. Minka, do you have anything to add, particularly around the, the experience of, of traveling to the Soviet Union and participating in these activist circles in the Communist International? Yeah, um, just yeah, one example of, uh, to kind of illustrate a lot of what Meredith is talking about, and I think this goes to this question of dignity and how one is treated or afforded a sense of being a full, a full human being, or in the language at the time, being a full man. And you, know, you see this from Black World War One veterans, where they talk about their experience, particularly in, in France, and how it's so radically different than what they're accustomed to in the US. Um, but Claude McKay, um, who goes with 
um, Kwame Kay is from Jamaica and he goes with a person by the name of Adol Heeswild, who's from what is now Suriname. They go as generally parts of the, the U.S. Communist Party's contingent to the fourth Communist International. And I think these might be the, the two first Black people to go to a Communist International. I don't think they're the first Black people to go to Russia. But for McKay, I think his experience is illustrative in that he goes, he's kind of a fraternal delegate. He's not considered a good party member and a number of the white contingent of the U.S. Communist Party is hostile toward him. Um, they, according to his account, they work to have him removed from a really good hotel and he's put into essentially a janitor's closet and he's kind of freezing his ass off. Um, and it's members of, it's, it's people from Russia, of the members of the Communist International who are from Russia and Russians themselves who put him up in a really nice hotel. But then he's also, um, paraded around. He's celebrated uh, throughout Moscow and Petrograd. He talks about seeing his picture displayed all over the city. And part of that has to do with kind of the, the, the limited Russian racial imagination at the time. But in the context of someone coming from Jamaica and then going to first Kansas and then New York in the 19-teens and 1920s, and then he's also, he's been to, to London before this time. And so he's had the experience of racism there. Um, to then come into a context where people are defending him against those who he is accustomed to, you know, daily potentially being the perpetuators of, if not physical harm, then a certain kind of racial animus and hostility that is debilitating in and of itself and being celebrated because he is black. I think those kinds of things resonate in a way that today we might see and emphasize the problematic nature of it. But at that point in time, it is something that is radically different than anything he's experienced, particularly coming from his, his stay in the US, that as that filters back, as that account filters in back into the US, those kinds of things, and, and he isn't unique in that experience, those kinds of accounts really give a sense of the Soviet Union as tangibly anti-racist, not just a rhetorical ploy, but these are people who will actually back up what they're saying, at least in, in the way that people understood it at that time. Those experiences, I think, really do um, resonate and kind of stoke the imagination of a number of people throughout the, the rest of the 1920s and into the 1930s. And there are a range of experiences that kind of display the, the limits of, of that. But uh, nonetheless, there's again, I come back to this. This is a state, a major world power taking an anti-racist stance. And that's just opposed to states that are both imperial powers that are exacting all kind of violence in on the continent of Africa, in Asia, um, various kinds of racial regimes in the Caribbean, but then also explicit state racism in the United States that I think um, it, it's difficult to underestimate how impactful that experience was. As both of you said, the the Black activists and 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 
those who go to the Soviet Union and, and participate in the Communist International and also the wider Black diaspora, whether it's from the Caribbean or Africa, are 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 active participants uh, with shaping uh, added policy of anti-colonialism and anti-racism uh, of the Soviet Union. T talk a talk about that role that that. African Americans, but the African diaspora more generally played in, in the shaping of that? Well, I think um, one of the things that I found uh, most compelling when doing the research for the book was of essentially a mock lecture or, you know, sort of um, an outline of curriculum uh, that. Um, was written by African-American communists and was intended to be used at factories, construction sites, you know, collective farms to hold political education classes, right? To, to educate the working population of the Soviet Union about what American racism looked like. Um, everything from issues of employment and housing to uh, obviously racial violence like lynching and the, the anti-black massacres of 1917-1919, but also framing a longer struggle of black resistance, dating, they, they would even, um, you know, looking at revolutions or rebellions of enslaved populations throughout the United States, but also of course in Haiti and, and Jamaica, right? So they're, they're although they're outlining this curriculum that is supposed to be used and who knows to what extent it was, but they're outlining this curriculum about American racism. But I think one of the, the key features that they uh, consistently insert in that is that African-Americans have been resisting this oppression and exploitation um, from the very beginning, that they are not simply victims um, and that there is this, they're writing histories. I mean, they're writing sort of uh, proto black histories, you know, mini black histories that they are integrating in these curriculums, so to speak, of, about American racial violence. Uh, and I think that's an important point that Soviet, Soviet interpretations of, uh, American racism and American racial violence and the plight of African-Americans do not appreciate on the level that to be a truly anti-racist uh, program or policies or curriculum should have put at the forefront, right? That, that African-Americans are not just victims who need a, a white savior or Bolshevik savior. Uh, so they're on, they are writing the, these things. Um, of course, Claude McKay, writes a series of short stories uh, in, the, in 1924, 1925. And then he also writes about you know, uh, Negroes in America or Blacks in America. Uh, so they, and again, his, his work consistently likewise emphasizes the role of, of fighting back of, of resistance and not just you know, sort of um, this notion of being victims, acknowledging victim, you know, victimization, but not assuming the identity of a victim. Yeah, Mika, this is one of the things that always struck me in, in this history is how when uh, African-Americans joined the com international communist movement, 
they didn't necessarily see themselves as joining, say, the American Party. They saw themselves as joining the Communist International. Uh, so, so talk more about like what role did they play in this this important organization in shaping its its policies? Yeah, I think you know that that point uh, uh, that they saw themselves as joining the, the, the international as opposed to just the the Communist Party is important because on the one hand it allowed them an international, a global structure and the ability for translation to work with black people across the diaspora, both coming from French and Belgian controlled um, uh, colonies in Africa, as well as um, um, the, the British colonies. Um, I don't know that they interacted with people from uh, Mozambique or, or Angola at this time. Um, that, that definitely comes much later. Um, but then also from South America and throughout the Caribbean. So it wasn't just the British West Indies, but it's also, uh, uh, Haiti, Guadeloupe, Martinique. And, and it allows them to build working relationships that sustain themselves throughout the 20s and, and 30s, but then outlive their participation in any kind of communist formation. So there are these two things, I think, that are going on. So on the one hand, you have them actually joining communist parties, joining the Communist International, being very enthusiastic about their membership and the possibilities that it presents, but also pushing the limits of how either the party or the international understands racial oppression and understands colonial domination. And one of the things that happens that I think is really important is that for a number of communists, it's only possible to understand this is US or elsewhere, uh, but particularly in Russia, I think it's, it's only or primarily possible for them to understand racial oppression as a species of national oppression. So there's, there's not a real sense of what race is and the way that people, that black people in the US or in the Caribbean are thinking about race at this time. And so the attempt to frame it as a national problem kind of moves away from some of the fine grain of what's going on in say the US context or what's going on in interactions in a colonial context that aren't just about empire. They are pushing back against that consistently and they are really saying that what racial oppression is, isn't quite the same thing as national oppression. And we can't lose sight of that. That's why the passage of the 1928 Black Belt Nation thesis, for some, it becomes in the US a tool to compel the American party to do things that it would not otherwise have done, but they don't accept the premise that they are an oppressed nation. And, and so they are looking at these things in much different kinds of ways. And so there's always this back and forth that you see throughout the 1920s and 30s. And I think where this comes in most dynamically is with the, the 1927 League Against Imperialism conference that meets in Brussels, and it brings people from around the world to, to Belgium for about a week or so. You have for the first time uh, a South African, Josiah Gumade and some other South Africans, but I think he's the, the black South African meeting with uh, people from Francophone Africa and the Caribbean 
as well as Richard Moore, who's originally from Barbados, but is coming from the United States. And they pass a resolution and Richard Moore writes the language and presents it. But it has this really compelling uh, line where it says the struggle against imperialism is an incessant struggle against white supremacy. And that's not the language you get coming out of the Communist International or any Communist Party. And so you see where they're able to shape how this is looking on a global scale. And so I think that, again, is 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 kind of symptomatic of um, the way that they are shaping the international and not simply shaped by it. But one of the things that they see most as, as, as most productive and most suggestive is that it allows them the room to organize outside of the limitations of their local party. And so you see that in particular in the 1930s with um, International Trade Union of Negro Workers, where they are organizing both with African seamen um, in, in Hamburg, Germany. They're making connections to uh, maritime workers and longshoremen in places like Trinidad and Jamaica, South Africa, this, this becomes very critical when you have Italy and Mussolini leading this fascist empire that invades uh, Ethiopia in 1935, that that becomes one of the mechanisms for, not the soul, but one of the mechanisms for trying to address that. And by then things are much more, um, much more dicey in terms of what the Communist International will allow one to do and still be a member. But nonetheless, it, it is suggestive of kind of the possibility that they saw. Meredith, 1928 really is this turning point because a lot of your work deals with after 1928, particularly the early 1930s. Um, how did the this Soviet on the Soviet side? How did they deal with this this dance between race and national oppression, or say African Americans as a nation in something like say the international campaign to save the Scottsboro Boys? Uh, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think they constantly struggled to understand exactly what Minka um, was getting at, that there is value in dealing with race um, and trying to uh, understand how it operates beyond, you know, sort of the nationalist framework. Uh, and at the same time, you have uh, African-Americans who are in the Soviet Union who are amazed at the level of understanding or at least knowledge of what's going on uh, in, the, in the United States with regard to the Scottsboro case. Uh, I think this comes as a real shock because of the apathy among white Americans at the time for the, for the um, possible execution of, of the Scottsboro youth. Uh, and so I think that on it, on it, you know, in itself is important to acknowledge because it still provides, I think, you know, to make, make it what, a point that Minka made earlier, it still provides such a radical difference from what uh, they're used to among in, in the United States with regard to, to white American. And so seeing these rallies taking place, seeing these speeches being given, denouncing the legal lynching um, is, is quite remarkable. Seeing um, 
protest resolutions being not only written in the Russian language newspapers, but also the Moscow, you know, the English language newspaper as well. Um, seeing placards and posters and cartoons and postcards uh, is also something that's that's key. Um, and I think not only with regard to Scottsboro, but there's also pushback in the universities themselves with regard to how uh, race relations are dealt with. Uh, the fact that initially the International London School was not accepting uh, African-Americans, that they were only accepting white Americans and all the African-American students were going to essentially the the, uh, the communist university of the toilers of the East among other oppressed nations supposedly. Uh, and so they're like, no, this is not cool. This is this is segregation. You're perpetuating the thing that you're claiming to to uh, denounce. Uh, so that's why you see someone like Harry Haywood get in, and then you have that group in 1930-31, who which is the like the first integrated class in the International London School, and all the myriad of problems that emerge because you have white American students having to deal with not just one or two African-American communist students, but nine or 10, right? Uh, and they're not willing to accept the uh, racist behaviors and comments and indignities that they're subjected to on the part of white Americans. And so the transcripts of some of the conversations that, that are being held in 1931 are quite remarkable, uh, where you have African-American communists saying, no, it's not okay for my white American communists to ask me to dance. Like that's not, you know, there, there's a lot <laughs> that, um, there's a, in a lot of ways that's problematic and a sort of basic understanding of a history of racial oppression in the United States would allow them to understand that. So it's not only that uh, the pushback against Soviet refusal to, or uh, Soviet, uh, challenges in dealing with the relationship between nation and race, but also white American communists complete and utter uh, refusal to have any appreciation or understanding of the history of racial oppression in the United States. Uh, and so that they too think that, well, if I'm not lynching you, I'm not calling you the N-word, so things are good, right? Um, and that, And they're basically saying you have to have you know, an anti-racist stance, you have to be aware of the everyday minor, but very important, you know, today we would call them microaggressions, um, but that you you can't do those, you can't engage in those. If you're an anti-racist person, if you're a member of the, what, the Communist Party of the United States, you need to check yourself. Um, these are not okay. So, I, so there's also, uh, so the Soviet officials are having a problem with this, but it's also, uh, on the ground, white American communists are also really struggling with this, and African Americans are tr uh, communists are trying to teach them uh, to tr to appreciate and study uh, the history of American racial violence. Um, now, a number of, of of Black Americans who are involved in in the common turn in international communism more broadly uh, become disillusioned with Soviet communism into the the mid to late 1930s, and and one. One key figure here is George Padmore, who has a really intense participation for a couple of years and then leaves or is expelled, depending on who you listen to, from the, the common turn. Um, 
you know, you you've both written about Padmore from from different angles. So who was George Padmore, and what's the significance of his experience, uh, Minka? Yeah, um, George Padmore. He was he's from Trinidad, born Malcolm Nurse, and um, he's actually a childhood friend of C.L.R. James. But he comes to the United States to study medicine at Fisk University and then goes on to study law in New York. But um, he ends up being an organizer in the Communist Party and, and focuses a lot of his energies both in Harlem, but also Howard University in Washington, D.C. And he has kind of this meteoric rise. He's someone who's considered uh, kind of exceptional intelligence, um, a really great writer, but he is a tireless organizer and he's very successful in getting uh, a range of students in Howard involved in different kinds of activities and then goes to Moscow. Uh, he spends a couple of years there and rises to head what's called the Negro Bureau and ultimately settles in Hamburg, Germany to lead the International Trade Union Committee of Negro Workers um, and edit its paper, its magazine, rather, The Negro Worker. And this is a magazine that has this reach from Hamburg to the Caribbean to Central and West Africa. And he is, for a time in the early 1930s, probably the most important Black person in the Communist International and in Moscow and then later in Hamburg. Um, with the rise of the Nazis, he ends up being arrested and uh, imprisoned for a couple of weeks and then expelled and he settles in London. And so Padmore, in a way, um, if you look at his biography, the, the, the gloss that I just gave, you see someone that is representative of both the appeal uh, the, the real appeal of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union to Black people around the world. He kind of moves into it through local organizing and then is able to have this kind of global impact on labor organizing and anti-imperialist struggles. But then with uh, Soviet policy shifts, he ends up being on the outs. And essentially, as the story goes, um, he's told that he has to tone down his criticism of British and French imperialism, and he refuses. And again, depending on who you listen to, he is expelled or he leaves uh, the Communist International. But then he, you know, he travels between Paris and London for a little bit, but then he throws himself into anti-colonial, anti-imperialist networks in, rooted in London, but throughout the British Isle and the British Empire, and ends up working with uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey, who was the first wife of Marcus Garvey, C.L.R. James, um, uh, a couple other names I can't remember, a person who's a labor organizer from uh, Nigeria, um, I.T.A. Wallace Johnson uh, is his name. And a number of others, uh, T. Ras McConan, who he had been, who had been a student at Howard University when he was an organizer, he was uh, the person who was behind the 1945 Pan African Congress, and that becomes kind of a nucleus for anti-colonial organizers that go, the, the people who come in and out of this orbit and into and around what was the International African Service Bureau, um, 
some of those members go on to lead anti-colonial struggles. And so you see kind of the arc where someone is drawn into for the kinds of international and institutional, institutionally viable international um, reach that they can have within the Commerce International. But then as their own politics come into conflict with the shifts in Soviet policy, um, at that point, that's when you see them move increasingly out of the Communist International, or you begin to see signs of much more difficult, uneasy relationships for those who remain in both Communist parties or in the Communist International and its various networks. And he's someone who is, I think, uh, unique in that he, he was really good at kind of the standard of Soviet knowledge production. So you have these uh, works that are very dense and detailed and empirical evidence, um, but he was able to marry that with a sense of kind of the the political nature, not just the, the, the economic, but the political nature of imperialism and racial oppression and what that meant for both people experiencing it, but then what it demanded of a radical class-based politics. And when that isn't able to live out in the Communist International, at least for George Padmore, you see him, there isn't a break. He continues the same kind of political organizing and activity and analysis that he carried with him into the Communist International. Um, and so I think he's one of those people who is just a really good encapsulation of the wealth of possibility that people saw in the Communist International and in the Soviet Union, but also the problems that they encountered when their own political inclinations didn't quite match up with the with the diplomatic or international machinations of Stalin and, and the Soviet Union. Yeah, Meredith, if you can add to that and, and, and flesh out a bit more of some of the limits that African-Americans who were going to the Soviet Union involved politically with it, you know, what led to their disillusionment or in someone like George Padmore's case, literally goes beyond uh, the context of, of what the Soviet uh, positions are. Yeah, well, what's fascinating to me about Padmore is that he continues to speak on some level Soviet anti-racism into the 40s and into even 1955 and his pan-Africanism or, pan or communism. Um, he continues to recycle the, his position as on the Moscow City Soviet uh, as evidence of the racial and national equality that had been achieved there. He also has various versions of the Stalingrad trial uh, with Robert Robinson was famously the defendant for, but then, and then he, he even says, you know, that, that Russians are the, the least class conscious or at least color conscious white people around. Um, and he, he points to not only the Stalingrad trial and his position as leader of the Moscow city or, or as an appointee on the Moscow city Soviet or a delegate, but that the achievements of non-Russian nationalities, um, that the remarkable progress that they have made uh, from under the czarist regime to the Soviet period as a result of uh, Soviet nationality policy. So, I mean, he was clearly aware of the problems of Soviet anti-racism and he's, he's uh, been, he was, when he was still in Moscow, African students would come to him with complaints 
about the racist remarks that they, you know, were um, subjected to, uh, and were the he was aware of the even the petition that a, a group of uh, African and African American students put together regarding racist imagery and advertisements and stories and plays. So he's clearly aware of that. So then the question is, well, what then is the purpose of claiming that the Soviet Union has established racial equality, um, has achieved a level of uh, anti-racism that no other political entity has yet achieved? And I would argue it's, it's because there's still value in imagining a place like that can exist <laughs> and does exist. And then also as a challenge to British and American imperialist uh, leaders to, you know, uh, to replicate, uh, to, you know, sort of as a form of, of competition. The, you know, communist regime has done this. Um, let's, let's continue to propagate the image of the Soviet Union as a society where race does not matter to sort of challenge you to sort of uh, get your weight up to, to uh, also make serious uh, systematic change. No, I was, I was just reminded, Meredith, when you were talking, and this is kind of the complexity of a number of people who are cycling in and out of the Communist International. When CLR James writes this, this very harsh anti-communist chapter, I think, of Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways, Padmore writes him saying, you know, you're taking it too far, that, that this is really uh, misrepresenting it. And this is well after he's left and he has no affiliation at that point with uh, Russia or any communist party uh, that I'm aware of. And he's he's still able to, to kind of understand the complex history and what is at stake and, and the kind of kind of self-serving in a way anti-communism that James was engaged in at that particular moment. What was the influence uh, of this period on the, you know, involvement in the Communist International, et cetera, uh, you know, experiences in the Soviet Union. What influence did this have in, in both of your opinions on the Black liberation struggle in the United States? Well, I think it reaffirmed uh, the value of establishing international alliances. It so I don't want to claim that the Soviet Union you know, sort of implants this idea or the Russian Revolution implants this idea, but it certainly, I think, reaffirms African-American radicals inclination to see that the domestic struggle has to be connected to a global one, to an it has to be an international struggle, and that there are there's real value in establishing international alliances with uh, foreign leaders, but also to be wary that um, the realpolitik oftentimes assumes precedence over a commitment to black equality uh, and anti-racist struggle. So obviously the, the case of the Soviet Union serves as a cautionary tale, but then we see uh, African-American radicals leading out to communist China or Cuba or Algeria or North Korea, um, and also then realizing that oftentimes the the demands of political power uh, trump those of uh, commitments to anti-racist internationalist struggle. Uh, and I think it also uh, reaffirms the importance that publicity, international publicity 
can ha have on a struggle, uh, whether it be in the case of the Scottsboro uh, Nine or in the case much later of Angela Davis, that there is, there is value in that. It's, it has its clear limitations to be sure, but that in terms of shining attention on individual injustices, that there can be an, a positive effect. Yeah, I, I, I think one of what well, there are a range of, of ways that we can kind of map this influence. I think on the one hand, the the emphasis on theoretical understanding of both the nature of racial oppression, the nature of colonialism, and tying that to capitalist uh, economic development is something that we see carried on throughout not simply the 1930s, but carried on into the 1980s. Um, and it's really not until you get the decline of Black power and kind of this lull in, uh, in the U.S. context, at least, Black political organizing, that that falls out of favor. And we see this emergence of, of a kind of culturalist approach and a, a black an ascendant Black liberalism in the 1990s. But if we look at the period from the 1930s and we just focus on the U.S. from the 1930s into the 1960s, we see both in the context of um, organizational activities. So the kinds of organizing that Black people who were in the Communist Party, whether or not they, they had traveled to Russia, that they engage in on local levels, they were able to organize communities, not simply workers, but also organize workers in very important workers in very important ways. And I think one of the most dynamic is the work that the Southern Negro Youth Congress did. This was a kind of a corollary to the National Negro Congress in the, in the mid 1930s. And so the the work that both of those did, but definitely the Southern Negro Youth Congress, um, played a vital role in organizing Southern workers, but also laying the groundwork for a lot of the work that ultimately happens in the early civil rights movement. Kind of some of the institutional, and not one-to-one -one dots that we can connect, but some of the institutional influences that um, lead people to see something like the Highlander Folk School as a viable training ground are the kinds of ways that the radical politics that were, you know, um, how they were shaped and how they were elaborated in the 1920s and 30s also informs the kinds of ideas, analyses, and approaches to political organizing that we see throughout the ensuing decades. And so it's not that, you know, you have this internationalism that's tied to the Soviet Union and the Russian Revolution and as international institutions in the 20s and 30s, and then you get Black Power and this orientation toward internationalism. You actually see that carried through throughout the 1940s and 50s. And so it's something that kind of carries over and informs um, some of the most vibrant kind of international politics in the, in the Black Power movement um, that we could think of. We see that kind of filtering through and popping up in various kinds of ways. And then I think it also, it doesn't provide the radicalism of later periods, but it informs what that radicalism looks like. So people are much more willing because of all this work and these experiences, they aren't kind of buying it whole cloth, 
but they're willing to critically engage it and think about it and turn to the people who are some of the folks that we talk about from the 20s and 30s to turn to them for ideas in these later periods. And so you see this kind of peppering everything from the Mississippi Freedom Summer to uh, questions of armed defense and the civil rights movement to the influence on people like Malcolm X when he's slowly making a move away from um, the Nation of Islam to his own kind of independent organizing uh, on up to someone like Angela Davis and the kind of work that she's doing with these various communist formations that are tied to the Panthers and other kinds of Black power formations. And I think probably most dynamically, and it's one of the organizations that's been written about probably the least in the 1960s, is the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, as well as the Revolutionary Union Movement that you have emerging out of Detroit and kind of the auto industry uh, in the 1960s and 70s. And I think these are, again, you can't draw one-to-one dots, but there's definitely a genealogy there that we could also track to someone like Emil Carl Cabral, Edward Von Lane, Thomas Arcana, a number of people who are involved in African liberation movements, particularly in the 1970s with the fight against the Portuguese. And finally, um, you know, both of you, when you, you teach this stuff to students, um, and, and given the political context that we, we've been in, you know, particularly in the last six months in the summer uh, around George Floyd's murder and the protests and anti-racism and a revitalization of an anti-racist movement of sorts. Um, why is this history? How do you what do you tell uh, students and others about this history and why it's important for us to, to know about it? Because I feel like, you know, in, in co- these conversations we're having right now, but also, you know, events that I participated with both of you in the last couple of months, I feel like we're reco- you know, we're all recovering something that has been to some extent forgotten. So uh, Meredith. Well, I think the the history of Soviet anti-racism is important on a number of levels uh, because it, it in many ways provides us with a lens of what things to avoid when we really want to, to implement real anti-racist policy and change. Uh, it can't be superficial. Uh, it can't be uh, surface knowledge and understanding of how white supremacy operates, how race operates. Uh, which is something that the Soviet <laughs> Soviet knowledge of American racial violence was uh, never evolved. Um, and so that, I think, contributes to a lack of understanding in Russia today about American racial violence. If there is no lynching, then why, why are African-Americans um, protesting and, and rising up? Um, so I think it also cannot be done from a paternalistic uh, position that uh, there has to be an equal partnership uh, in terms of implementing and outlining and designing anti-racist policies and programs to really create racial equity rather than just to use it as a tool to claim we're morally superior or to hide the injustices that we are committing, right? Which then led to not anti-racist feelings or feelings of racial solidarity among a large number of uh, Soviet citizens, but led to extreme resentment that 
that American racial violence is being used to cover up or justify on some level our own forms of violence and atrocity. Uh, so all those things I think are important. It's, it's important to study for that. But then also a lot of the things that Mika and I were uh, alluding to that there there is also these moments <laughs> where there was real possibility that that we need to imagine, we need to dream, we have to believe that anti-racist work can be implemented and can be real uh, and can create a more just, equitable world that a lot of these African-American radicals were dreaming of um, and that we need that more now than ever in many ways. And, and I think the other thing to take away is that the, the uh, twin uh, legacy of white supremacy and anti-communism is still in full effect and is still being mobilized to thwart real anti-racist change. Uh, so uh, that too needs to be confronted and um, dismantled in, in order for a, a new world, a new really anti-racist world to be born. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric that was thrown at even Kamala Harris uh, as a monster and a communist is really reminiscent of the ways in which Angela Davis was uh, degraded and vilified in the US press. Uh, so it, and of course the sort of connections now that are being drawn between white supremacists in Russia and white supremacists in the United States is alarming. Um, so we need to, we need to look at these histories and, and envision um, space for anti-racist struggle that looks at racism in Russia against non-Russian nationalities, but that also confronts uh, obviously uh, racism and white supremacy in the United States. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I've done and, I, and I'm off this semester, but when I go back into the classroom is uh, when you think about the the wave of Black Lives Matter protests over the summer across the world, I think that really gets at um, kind of the global currents, the world currents of Black political struggle and uh, a sense of a connection between these different places so that you can have the protests that emerged in France, but France has had its own, their Black people have been having their own movements and concerns and questions um, from, uh, well, forever. I, I started visiting uh, Paris in the mid-2000s, and one of the first times there, I, I stumbled upon a protest uh, of people from, I think, Cote d'Ivoire around um, uh, French bombing, I, I think, or French military action in Cote d'Ivoire. And so I, I think one of the things that we can really highlight is how this history uh, shows one the the long held belief that these concerns that people have in one context and one place are never simply about that place alone. They've always been tied to other locations, and particularly in this moment um, with this lunatic that we have in the White House and the kind of uh, insanity that's grown up around it, is to not limit ourselves to just the U.S. context, both either in 
in how we understand the problem or in how we organize and attempt to address the problem. That this is something that has always been seen as a problem to just focus on the U.S. context. So there's always been an attempt to situate what is going on in the U.S. in a global context and to see how what people experience in the U.S. is definitely an indelibly tied to what those experiences are of Black people in Europe, to what they are in Africa, the Caribbean, South America, Asia, and they aren't identical. They do require attention to the fine grain, but that in in grappling with that, and I think this is where um, I'm, I really try and push my students to think about, if we see the the appeal that the Soviet Union had two black people in this period. It wasn't a simplistic appeal of, oh, there's this Soviet model that will be, you know, it, it will be heaven. We will institute that, bring it about, and then the streets will flow with milk and honey. It's more so that it facilitated a kind of political imagination that could pursue alternatives that people could envision that then allowed for bringing about realities that maybe were beyond what one could think about. And so it's to always see the the possibility in making these connections and in pursuing what might be in the mainstream delegitimated or possibly even if this fool gets elected again, criminal political ideas that in those we can find a, a range of ways to respond to our present condition and that what impacts Black people in particular isn't something that's just particular to Black people, but that has world historical importance. That was Meredith Roman and Minka Makalani. Meredith Roman is an associate professor of history at SUNY Brockport and the author of Opposing Jim Crow, African Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928 to 1937. Her current research focuses on dissent, human rights, and repression in the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. Minka Makalani is an associate professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of In the Cause of Freedom, Radical Black Internationalism from Harlem to London, 1917 to 1939. He's also the co-author with Devarian Baldwin of Escape from New York, The New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. He's currently working on two projects. The first is Calypso Conquered the World, CLR James and the Politically Unimaginable in Trinidad, which is a study of CLR James's return to Trinidad and his work on the West Indies Federation. The second is Words Past the Margin, Black Thinking Through the Impossible, which explores streams of black political imagination in popular culture, Black Lives Matter, hip-hop, and a cinema of the Senegalese filmmaker Usman Sembe. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. 
you can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.